last week we started a new sermon series, My Testimony, and this week uh, sharing her testimony with us is Janie Hitchcock. So Janie, I don't see you. She's around here somewhere. There she is. So come on up, Janie. If you don't already know me, my name is Janie, and this is my testimony about God's love. I was born into a family with addiction issues. My mother was not a nurturing person, and I wasn't brought up to know my father. When I was probably under one year old, my mother moved me from the most southwest corner of Virginia to the Houston, Texas area when her sister's family moved to Houston. When I was about two years old, my mother was in a very serious car accident, and I was sent to live with my grandparents back in Virginia for about two years. My grandparents were very nurturing, very loving, and my grandfather was a coal miner in a little mountain town, but he was also a Baptist minister. So that began my church attendance. When I was about four years old, I was returned back home to my mother, who at that time was engaged to my stepfather, who actually was a very nice person. Because my mother and father worked shift work, because that's what most people in the Houston area did, we, have a, we had a live-in babysitter named Weta. Weta was a widow, t- and to supplement her income, she also kept the nursery at the First Baptist Church in our area of Houston. Every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, Weta went to church, and I went with her. So my church attendance continued, and it was this church that I was given the gift of faith and baptized. Fast forward to when I was about 12 years old. My mother left my stepfather. I got a new stepfather, which was not a very nice person, and Weta was no longer with us, and I never really knew what happened to her or why we never saw her again. So my church attendance stopped. However, because of the remarriage, we moved into Pasadena where my aunt lived and my aunt began picking me up for every church service. So, my church attendance continued until I graduated from high school. Fast forward to when I was 22 and my mother died. She was 39 and she died from acute alcoholism and this was actually the cause that was listed on her death certificate. So without going into any details, uh, you can probably draw your own conclusions about what my home life was like. It wasn't until I was actually grown that I realized God's provision all throughout my life. My grandparents, Weta, my aunt. I've heard a song recently that's called There Was Jesus, and I can honestly say that this describes my life and God's faithfulness. You've probably heard the song, but it would be well worth your time to stop and actually read the lyrics. Have I made bad choices? Absolutely. But Jesus has never left me. Jesus was always there. Not only did God provide me with Christian models throughout my life, but he saved me from the addiction road that I could have so easily gone down. God put different desires in my heart. I can only describe it in two words, but God. 
God also gave me the desire to serve others. And this is where I actually find my greatest joy. So this is my testimony, and I pray that it serves to show that God will provide even when you aren't aware of it. That's just God's love. And also, God will prepare you of how you can best serve Him to give God all the glory. Because God loves you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Janie. Thank you so much for sharing your testimony with us. Well, if you weren't here last week, uh, I'm going to do a very quick summary of what we covered last week. It all has to do with unity. We said in Acts... Chapter 1, verse 8, however, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be martyrs. That's the word for testimony. That's witness. You will be my martyrs. It just doesn't mean that you're going to die a horrible death for Christ. It means that the way we live our lives, that's our testimony. You'll be that for me in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the very fringes of the earth. That's the reality. And some of us may say, man, receiving power, that sounds pretty good. I want to receive some power. If you're a member of the body of Christ, then you have received power. But see, there's a level of accountability that goes along with that. Jesus isn't saying that it's a good thing or that it's a bad thing. He's saying this is what's going to happen. You're going to have a level of accountability in the way that we live our lives in and among as members of the bride and the body of Christ. That's our testimony. And it can be a good thing. It can honor God. It can glorify him or it can shame him. It's not really true. We can't really shame God, but we can shame ourselves. Can't really sully the name and the glory of God. And through that unity, through that testimony of ours, That's what Jesus said in John 17. He prayed to the Father and he said, he prayed, God, Father, make them one as you and I are one, that they will be perfected in unity so that the world will know you sent me and love them as, you can put an equal sign right where that word as is because that's what it means. Equal to, you're going to love them as equal to the love that you have for me. That's what Jesus said. That was his prayer for you and for me as members of the bride and the body of Christ. Then we looked at Ephesians chapter 4, and we said that unity is not a subjective thing. See, as fallen beings, what we like to do is come up with our own inventions, our own creations, our own synthetic manufactured standards for everything, for everything. Jesus didn't leave that option open to us. He said, until we all reach unity in the faith, intimacy with the Son of God, becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's what that standard is. It's not left to us. And so when we start to come up with ideas of what it is to be a member of the bride and the body of Christ, if it doesn't measure up with if it doesn't measure up to the fullness of Christ, faith and knowledge of Him, 
then it's something that we've come up with on our own. I know I'm not the brightest bulb in the box. Oftentimes I need something broken down for me in very simple terms. And in Philippians 2, 3, God does that for us. Say, well, what does that really mean? The standard of Christ, the measure, the fullness, that's a lot of words, and I don't really know what that means. What it means is, is right here, Philippians 2, 3, do nothing selfish or prideful. Nothing. If there's something that we're doing out of that rises from selfish ambition or vainglory, if it comes out of that, it is sin. It's sin. So he makes it really really simple. Esteem others is superior to ourselves. How do we do this week in esteeming others? See, because we heard this last week, if you were here, how do we do esteeming others is more important, superior to ourselves? Then we said in 2 Corinthians... 2 Corinthians 13.5, the Apostle Paul said we need to examine ourselves to see whether or not that stuff is true. Are we living up to that measure or are we not? See, Socrates said the unexamined life isn't worth living. And what he was really saying is something that the Apostle Paul would say many years later is that we have to examine ourselves, not based on some idea, some concept of, hey, you know, when I go to church, people smile and they shake my hands and they say, boy, that's a really good church. I like it there. But are we examining ourselves in the sense that we are truly considering others as superior to ourselves? Are we? Or do we have more of a Judges chapter 21 mentality. Even after we've heard all of that, my inclination in my flesh, maybe it's yours too, is to still default to cultural standards rather than Christ. Still leave it to myself. We pull a judges. In those days, the people of God, Israel, had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. And we'll all shake our heads and we'll say, oh, yeah, that's horrible. That's a horrible thing to do. How could they do that? I would never do that. Except for when it comes to what? See, because that's the very thing. Say 99.9% of the time, I don't do that Judges 21 25 thing. I always consider God as my king. I always do what's right in his eyes. Really? Do we? Do you? And I think it's really easy for us to look at the people, the nation of Israel, and the way that they live their lives and the way that they walk and say, shame on them. I pity them, those fools. And I wonder who's going to look on us, the test of the future, looking back on the church, looking back on maybe this congregation and this time and these people and saying, wow, I can't believe they did that. I can't believe that was the thing that was their hang-up, that they saw that being the thing 
doing that they was fit in their own eyes. Ephesians 4.11 Christ himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastor-teachers. What some of us will do is we say, well, I kind of like the ministries of the church. I like the music. I like the preaching. I like the stuff that I receive. I like being a consumer. I like all of that. I just don't like you, pastor. I just don't like your leadership. I don't like the music. I don't like the color of the pews. I don't like the walls. What's your thing that you don't like? You see, what God has done is he's given people to be leaders in the church, appointed by God. Christ himself gave some to be these. Christ has done that. Well, you know, I like a lot of this stuff. I just don't like you. I don't like it when you preach about that particular thing. Hmm. Doing what we see fit in our own eyes. If we're not submitting to the person or the people that Christ himself appointed to equip the saints for the work of ministry, can we honestly say that we're submitting to Christ? Christ, I'm submitting to you. I'm just not submitting to the person that you've put over the flock. I'll submit to you and your lordship and your sovereignty I'm just not going to submit to them because I know better. Hmm. There's a man named Job. I'll let you guys take over the slides from this point. There's a guy named Job who had a really great relationship with God. He did. Job had a great relationship with God, and biblical scholars believe that Job, the book in the Bible is actually the oldest book. So Job didn't have the benefit of any of God's Word. No scripture was written down for him to know, to memorize, but yet somehow he was a righteous man that walked with God. Doesn't that blow your mind? That we have the fullness of God's revelation from Genesis all the way to the end of the story. We know how things are going to end. We know. And can we stand there and say that if we didn't know that there was a guy named Satan, that there was this demonic force, this angel that's fallen from God who wants to see us curse him, to shake our fists at him, to renounce him. Yet Job stood firm. Could we do that? He had a great relationship with God. Yahweh's faith in Job wasn't misplaced, but it hadn't truly been tested yet, right? At the beginning of the story, there's these cosmic forces at work that Job knows nothing about, and he never hears through the rest of the story. He never hears about it. God doesn't tell him a word about what's going on behind the scenes. He doesn't. But his faith hasn't been tested Satan came along thinking he was going to cause Job to curse him. Curse the Lord. So God used the eternally defeated one like we would use a salt shaker. Picture Morgan Freeman shaking a little salt shaker. 
That's God with Satan. People who have this delusional idea that God is the light and Satan's the dark and it's this tug of war. Satan is a created being, folks. It's not a tug of war. If you read the book of Revelation, there's no question about how the story ends. He is the eternally defeated one. Yet God uses him like we would use a salt shaker. Doesn't that warm your heart and give you strength and courage and joy to know? The end is not uncertain. God greenlighted Satan to bring the house down on Job. Man lost his kids. How many of us, if we lost our children, would we renounce God today, even though we have the fullness of Scripture? He lost his flocks, his livelihood. He lost virtually everything. And in Job chapter 1, verse 22, it says, it reads, Throughout all this, Job did not sin or ascribe blame to God for anything. Is that true of us? Is that true of us in the way that we live our lives? God, I'm not going to blame you for anything. But see, that was Job's starting place. That faith had not been refined. It hadn't been taken through the furnace. All of the dross had yet to be settling up to the top. God hadn't scraped away all of the garbage. You can read in Romans chapter 5 the idea of our character being tested in order to produce perseverance and endurance and hope. Throughout the story of Job, various characters from his wife to some of his friends cycle through arguments against Job. There's this idea in their heads, this misconception, their worldly wisdom that they're bringing into the argument, that they're trying to impose upon Job and say, Job, there's got to be some unconfessed sin here, buddy. There's got to be something that you're doing wrong. See, because when God does something, when God punishes you, it's your guilt and your shame starts to go down, and then your pain and your suffering goes up. It's inversely proportionate. So if you're experiencing pain and suffering, it's because there's sin in your life. That's the way the cosmic scales work over and over and over again. Different arguments, but the same concept, the same idea. Job, there's some unconfessed sin. There's some guilt in your life. And if you would bring it before the Lord, he would purge all of that from you. And the truth is, is that all of Job's friends were wrong. Retribution theory is false. It's not the way that God operates. Retribution theory is something that's akin to prosperity gospel, that if I do everything right, then what's going to end up happening? If you put more and more stuff on the good side, that if I pray and I have good works, then my prosperity is going to go up. And we say, we don't believe that, but we do. If I do all the right stuff, God had better bless me and do it abundantly. And if there's shame and if there's pain and suffering in my life, I must be doing something wrong. That's prosperity gospel, and it's garbage. And God needs to purge that from our lives. The flawed notion that our well-being in our life, that our preferences, 
material blessings, our personal happiness are directly proportionate to our sin and God's judgment on us. God needs to flush it. He began to do that in Job's life. There's that cosmic battle that's going on behind the scenes that Job knows nothing about. What God needs to do is to provide sorely needed correction in our lives. And I want to ask you, and this is something that I don't want to see a bunch of heads nodding. Listen, how do you respond when God leans into your life with correction? See, many of us, what we do, our default is, is what we do is we take correction, whether it comes directly from God, whether it comes through a pastor, whether it comes through a brother or sister in Christ. Normally, what our default is, is that we take it as criticism. If someone's correcting me, it's criticism. So if correction equals criticism, and criticism equals condemnation, and there's no condemnation in Christ, then it cannot be from God. And so what we say is, if you're trying to correct me, that's criticism, it's condemnation, I don't want to hear it. There can't be anything that needs to be cleaned up to be purged that needs to be resolved in my life. Nothing. And it's false. It's absolutely false. There are things in my life that need to be corrected. And a lot of times that happens through my loving wife. She'll say, honey, I submit to your, to your authority because you're my husband, but I truly believe that you're wrong in this. Years ago, I had come to a place in my life where I said, because of my student loan debt, God wouldn't want me to tithe if I have student loan debt because my student loan was going to seminary. That was my tithe. So how can I tithe when I'm in debt? God, how can I give you from something that I don't have? And she shook her head and said, that's a really great argument, but it's wrong. But you're my husband, and so I'm going to submit to your authority. Thank you. One day, I walked into my wife and I said, honey, I'm sorry. You were right. God convicted me. And she just smiled and there was no condemnation. She said, I know. I know. Because it's, it's in here. And you could say whatever you want. You can come up with every argument in the world. And I can be really persuasive when I want to be. But it doesn't change God's word. And one of the most beautiful days of my life is when we were at another church. And Christine wrote out our first tithe check. And she put it in my pocket. And in that church, they passed the basket. And I took it out. And I made my offering to God. And I said, thank you, Lord, for being patient with me. See, in Proverbs 1.7, it says, the fear of the Lord is the genesis. It's the beginning of intimacy, skill, and correction. And what we say is, God, I love the idea of intimacy with you. I love it. I love that knowledge of you. I love going into the Word and finding something and say, ooh, that warms my heart. I love that verse. 
But what about the verse when he presses in and saying, you're not living up to my standard in this. Well, let me turn the page. I don't like that one. We can do like Thomas Jefferson, and we can cut out all of the parts of the Bible that we don't like. Maybe we won't go that far, but we're doing it. If we ignore God's correction in our lives, we're doing it. God, I love your intimacy. I love the idea of living a skillful life. I love, love, love the idea of wisdom. I love the idea of unity in the body. And then God leans in and says, this is an area that you have got to surrender to my lordship. You have to. You have to. Whatever that is. We say, no, God, I'm just going to turn the page on that one. That's what Job did. That's what Job did. If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Job. Chapter 23. It's before Psalms and Proverbs. It's after Esther and Second Chronicles. I'd give you the page number, 680 in my Bible, but that's probably not going to help you much. Give you just a moment to turn there. Job looks like Job, if you've never read the Bible before. Job 23. This dialogue's been going on with Job's friends trying to point out what a fool he is, and they're speaking this worldly retribution theory, prosperity gospel garbage to him. That's the reason why you're suffering, Job. That's the reason why your children have died. That's the reason why your wife doesn't like you anymore. That's the reason why you're covered with sores. That's the reason why you're experiencing pain. Job says in 23, then Job answered, Today also my complaint is bitter. He's speaking to God. His hand is heavy despite my groaning. If only I knew how to find him so that I could go to his throne, I would plead my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn how he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he prosecute me forcefully? No, he would certainly pay attention to me. Then an upright man could reason with him, and I would escape from my judge. Some translations read judgment forever. In his erroneous and flawed prosperity gospel mindset, his wrong understanding of God's methods and sovereignty, Job determines, I'm not guilty of anything. Careful, as one of my professors in seminary used to say, careful, I'm not guilty of anything. Therefore, there should be no pain, no suffering. God has, in fact, made a huge mistake in my life. I just need an audience with God. I need him to show up so I can point out his error and I can tell him what he's done wrong, his flaws and his failures. That's what needs to happen. Verse 8, if I go to the east, he's not there. I can't find him. If I go to the west, I cannot perceive him. When he is at work to the north, I can't see him. 
When he turns to the south, I can't find him. And I just want to ask you, do y'all remember when we were in Psalm 107? Anybody remember that? Just a, a few weeks ago in verse 3, and it told us the extent to which God goes to pursue each and every one of us. He goes as far as the east where the sun rises. He goes all the way to the west where it sets. He goes as far to the north where invaders and exile are. He goes all the way to the south, the place of the sea, hopeless desperation. There is no place we can go where God will not pursue us. Nowhere. And yet Job stands here before God saying, I can't find him. Maybe in our lives, when we can't find God, it's not because God isn't pursuing us. It's because we are not pursuing God. God isn't far the point of the book of Job is that there's an epic spiritual battle that's going on behind the veil. We can't see it without spiritual eyes. We can't see it without spiritual eyes. The accuser, the eternally defeated one, desires for us to curse God. Not because of what he's doing in the spiritual realm, not what's eternal, but what's happening here in the physical. God, because I'm a little uncomfortable, because there's this thing that I wanted like a child, this is how I saw this playing out in my life, and it didn't happen, so now I'm having a pity party, and I'm mad at you because I didn't get my way. How dare you, God? Stand before me. I'm going to put you on trial. Hmm. Job has the audacity to call the God of eternity on trial. Verse 10, yet he knows the way I have taken. When he's tested me, I'm confident. I will emerge as pure as gold. My feet have followed his tracks. I have kept to his way. I've not turned aside. I've not departed from the commands of his lips. I've treasured the words from his mouth more than my Entitlement. Some of your translations at the end of verse 12 may say, My daily food, my daily bread, my allotment, my prescription. It's the Hebrew word Coke, like we would say a Coca Cola Coke. It's my entitlement. See, God, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to be obedient to you, and I'm going to give you everything that I've got up until. That thing. See, that's what Job is saying. I treasure the words of his mouth more than I treasure my entitlement. Is that true? See, because if it were true, then God would not be called to account to stand before Job on trial. It sounds good on the surface. It sounds good on the surface, but if it were true in Job's life and in our lives... We would never question God. God appears and he answers Job from a tempest storm in chapter 38. I'll give you just a moment to turn there. 
chapter 38. One of the most terrifying ideas, thoughts, moments in all of Scripture. The idea of Kevin Kelly standing before God Almighty and demanding an audience. God, you better show up and you better have a good answer for what's going down in my life. I want to know why things aren't exactly the way I planned them out to be. I want to know my, my will is not being done in my life. Show up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to question you, and you better have a really good answer. Chapter 38 reads, Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, from a tempest, a tempest storm. Could you imagine? I want you to close your eyes for a moment. This awesome, almighty God, this creator of all things, that you're standing there in a moment accusing God, calling him to trial, and he actually shows up in this horrifying, terrifying, tempest storm before you. This isn't a puffy little white cloud. This is God Almighty. God says, who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. Could you imagine? I imagine Job standing there absolutely terrified. Get ready to answer me like a man. God goes on to say in 38.12, Have you, Job, have you ever commanded the morning or assigned the dawn at space? 38.33, do you know the laws of heaven? Can you oppose its authority on earth? God goes on and on and on, telling Job about all the things that he doesn't know. In chapter 40, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Job responds to God, I'm so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. See, wisdom, skill in life is that if we can learn from the mistakes of others instead of calling God to stand before us, God, you better show up and give me an answer right now about my, why my life isn't turning out the way I wanted it to. And what we can learn from Job is that what's probably a better idea is to take our hand when we feel that way and put it over our mouth because we don't want God to really show up in a tempest storm and call us to account. I'm so... Insignificant. A moment ago, Job said, I've got this God thing down. I love you, God. I love your words more than my daily bread, more than my entitlement, more than my allotment. But if that were true, I don't think Job would have ever called God to trial for a mis miscarriage of justice in his life. Now that God has spoken, Job's hand is over his mouth. God goes on for another couple of chapters, and then in chapter 42, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that 
obscures or conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I ran my mouth. I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen, and I will speak when you question. You will inform me. I had heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, therefore, I reject my words. I'm filled with regret and sorrow for them. I, your creation, you being the creator, I am merely dust and ashes. Do you see the humility? Do you see it? If we really love God, then we love people. And there's no way around that. And if we really love people, we love God. I'm not talking about a worldly Disney experience kind of love that gives us warm fuzzies on Sunday. I'm talking about the kind that is the gospel. Jesus is king. We love, we serve, we surrender within the bride and the body of Christ. It's our heart's desire to consider others superior to ourselves. Our love within the bride is our submission to the the leaders that God has appointed over the flock. God, I treasure you and I treasure your words even more than my entitlement. I just don't like, and there's a blank there. What's your blank? I just don't like this thing. I just don't like that person. Pastor, I just don't like you. In Luke chapter 18, verse 22, it's the story of the rich young ruler. And at the end of the story, after the rich young ruler is told Jesus about what an upright and outstanding, peerless, spotless life he's lived. Jesus says to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. When the man heard this, he became very sad because he had many great possessions. And so today I just want to ask, what's the one thing? You could say I'm generous with my money, I'm just not generous with my time. Or I'm generous with my time, I'm just not generous with my money. Or I'm generous with my money, I just don't want to, I just don't want to give it to the church. See, because I've determined that there's this, there's parachurch organization over here that I want to support. And I want to tell you folks, that's not biblical. You can in addition to, but God says, bring all of your first fruits into the storehouse. All of your first fruits. It has to start here. You can't say, well, I like Goodwill. I like March of Dimes. I like Samaritan's Purse. There's a missionary that I support. That's how I tithe. That's where I give. You can. But if you're not giving here, if you're a member of this church, and you don't give here, not just of your time, not just of your talents, not just of your treasure, but all of your first fruits. 
Jesus, I like you, but I like my entitlement to fill in the blank more. I've treasured the words from his mouth more than my entitlement. See, when we truly can lay down our entitlement to all things, that becomes our testimony within the bride and the body of Christ. But until that happens, there's something blocking your spiritual maturity and growth. Our vision as a church, a spirit-led church revealing Christ through unity and worship. And if we're not in unity and worship together as the bride and the body, it's not saying that we don't have a testimony. It's saying that we have a flawed testimony saying what we're communicating and what we're conveying out there to the world is not the spotless bride of Christ. Today, during this time of invitation, before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, I just want to encourage you to respond. How does the Lord, what during this time of teaching and preaching, what has the Lord impressed upon you? What's that correction where you said, ow, where he maybe leaned in a little bit. He pressed on something just a little bit. Maybe it's that you've never been baptized as an adult. Well, I did that as a kid. My mom and dad did that for me. Is that a believer's baptism? Is that the kind that we find in Scripture? Maybe it's that you're selfish with your time. Maybe it's that you're selfish with your tithe. Whatever it is that's an obstacle where the Spirit is pressing upon you, you have an opportunity right now to take it before the Lord. And I want to challenge you to do that. See, because if we celebrate the Lord's Supper together and there's a sin that the Spirit has pushed on your heart and said, this has got to go and it doesn't go, then it's a lie to take the Lord's Supper and say, I'm in fellowship with you, God, and with the bride and the body. This is our opportunity to respond. And I want to encourage you to do that.